Welcome to the NCLA podcast. I am your host, Rachel Mann, and today I am talking with our guest, Colin Seal. Colin is an award-winning educator, advocate, entrepreneur, critical thinking expert, author of Thinking Like a Lawyer. He's a Forbes contributor, and he's the founder of Think Law. And I've had the great fortune of knowing Colin for several years now. We originally met um, at a, a conference, I believe back in maybe 2015, 2016. And I'm just really excited to have, have you on the show today, Colin. So thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm really, really excited to be a part of this conversation. You know, and I, I've had the fortune of having so many conversations around education with you, around equity, around the work that you do with merging uh, career paths, your work in law, and then also now in education. Um, so can you tell us more about yourself and what led you to your current work today? Sure. I think to tell this story, it's actually easier to start somewhere closer to the end and then work my way backwards. When I had the experience of uh, teaching and going to law school at night and eventually practicing law, something very interesting happened. I'm at this big fancy firm and it turns out that people love to hear what you want to say about education when you're no longer in education. So now I'm on the board for the Nevada STEM Coalition. I'm doing a lot of different things um, with trying to make sure that we are leading this pathway for the future. And everyone's talking about the future of work and the future this and the future that. But then when I go to see the examples of what this looks like, I'm seeing an after-school robotics program with four children. I'm seeing highly selective magnet schools, highly selective career and technical education academies that are only getting a small fraction of students. And I'm looking around and I'm realizing that we're saying two things at once. We're saying that critical thinking is this essential piece of ensuring that our kids have the flexibility, the agility, the communication skills that they need to thrive in the 21st century. But right now, we're also saying that critical thinking is a luxury good. And that mattered because going all the way back to my time in elementary school, when I lived in Brooklyn, New York, when I was a kid that ended up being one of the kids I would later serve as someone that was on free and reduced lunch and the first generation in, in, in the country and living in a struggle, living in a situation where my dad was incarcerated for a decade for selling drugs. At a time when my behavior was off the chain, I ended up getting referred to a gifted and talented program and being bused to this school in Brooklyn where in this school, I was having this separate and unequal educational experience. And even then, I realized that genius and brilliance is distributed equally, but so often opportunity is not. That was the critical thinking gap. So the work that I have come to do with Think Law, where we are working diligently to address closing the critical thinking gap as a core equity issue in education, is something that we approach in a lot of different levels. For upper grades, we do it using our curriculum based off of real life legal cases. For earlier grades, we do it based off of fairy tales and nursery rhymes, because it turns out there's so many shady characters in children's stories. And then we do a lot of practical critical thinking workshops for parents, for teachers. And my book, Thinking Like a Lawyer, a framework for teacher critical thinking to all kids, just came out at the end of April. And to give you an idea of sort of the universal approach to critical thinking that we're advocating for and laying out in that book, 
When it came out on Amazon, it debuted as a number one new release in gifted education, special education, and education psychology. So that could tell you something about where people are seeing this need everywhere. Because at the end of the day, every teacher needs to know how to teach critical thinking to every student. And that's really the bulk of what our work is all about. Well, and you know, and that that makes me think of one of our one of our programs that we have for career and technical education, which is law and public safety. But we see that it really does expand so much further, even in the current events. That you know, it's something that impacts everyone. You know, right right now we're just seeing it so much in our world events. And I, I know that your book has a framework. Um, how can your framework help CTE teachers to close the critical thinking gap? So I think it's important to back up for a second. And to all the CTE champions and educators that are listening in, of course, just because kids are doing a culinary program or a robotics program or aviation program, doesn't necessarily mean that that's what they're doing for the rest of their lives. In fact, there's a reason you're doing this. There's also a reason that the graduation rates for CTE program students are usually through the roof. It's not necessarily about that task. It's about everything that comes with learning that craft and working in teams and getting to a point where it becomes normal that our kids are learning before they're leaving high school how to listen to understand, how to speak to be understood, how to disagree without being disagreeable. And when you start to think about what that all means as a framework, it comes down to this idea that even CTE programs, when we think about all the resources that go into it and everything that it takes to get kids to be successful, there's a couple of things you start to notice. How often do you see students who are rock stars in a traditional academic setting who struggle in CTE? They struggle with uncertainty. They struggle with gray. How do we create that earlier on in the process is what the Thinking Like a Lawyer framework is all about. So like, imagine a kid is in kindergarten and we're going through nursery rhymes and they look at three blind mice. And when they look at three blind mice, they're thinking about it as like, huh, my teacher just asked me a very strange question. My teacher just asked me, what is it like to be a blind mouse? What are those hardships? What are the challenges? And it's forcing me to see the world through the eyes of these blind mice. And I'm thinking, wow, I'm probably much more susceptible to prey. I'm probably having a much harder time getting food. And guess what? I probably have to rely a lot more on my other senses, which means maybe that's why I'm running after the farmer's wife. It actually isn't even about this lady. So as we start building this empathy and teaching our kids perspectives, that's what that could look like from a very young grade. But that's not just something that we're just throwing out as part of a humanities kind of strand, because even in math and science, there's space for that as well. So I could think about a world where I'm saying I'm an algebra teacher, which I actually taught middle school and high school math. So you can solve this equation. All right, great. Or I can say, hey, Colin did this equation and he made a mistake. Find a mistake. Better. But if I'm really going to move it to a level where I'm thinking like a lawyer, I might say, hey, Rachel did this equation wrong and Colin did this equation wrong. Which one is more right? Now we're dividing the class up and half of the class is a lawyer for Rachel. The other half is a lawyer for Colin. 
and they've got to make a claim. They got to back it up with evidence. They got to think about different perspectives. They got to think about the thinking of others. That's like multi-level metacognition. They even ask these big picture questions like, what would the world look like if we valued computational accuracy more than we did conceptual understanding? And now what we're doing is we've created a math experience for the I don't do math people. We've created legit reasons to write persuasively in math, to communicate effectively in a math class and have that sort of discourse, have our kids be much more comfortable in the gray. So this is really what we're headed towards. And I think as an exclamation point, I want to bring up this quick story. I Before this pandemic, I'm flying a lot, I'm traveling a lot, and I happened to be on a plane one time with a woman who leads the career services program for a very prominent engineering school in the Southwest. And she told me the strangest thing, Rachel. She told me that her key employers all kind of met with her and it was basically like, like an intervention. And in this session, they all had the same problem. The problem was they were basically demanding that she stop sending them 4.0 students because the 4.0 students they were churning out were useless to them. You understand what I'm saying? Like wow. people that are perfect, that are they didn't have any space in an engineering firm, a firm that's based on failure, they couldn't handle that. And they were not useful. So when we think about closing a critical thinking gap, yes, it's about equity. Yes, it's about social justice. But it's also about this massive gap that we have between knowledge and practice in our world. If we can't have the level of public intellectualism that's relatable, that people can actually connect to, to the point where people don't even want to wear a mask because they don't trust the person asking them to wear a mask, we've got some serious problems ahead of us. And that's a real driver behind the work we're doing. Wow. And, you know, and critical thinking is something that we've always needed. And there's such a lack of it. Just even from the beginning of your conversation, talking about how to look at the three blind mice differently and to add that level of empathy and understanding, that that is something that we really don't see. We see a lot more checklists and uh, curriculum that doesn't include that. And in your, in your book, you say that the critical thinking gap is far from insurmountable because it is a gap in expectations, not potential. Can you share a little bit more about that? Sure. So five years ago, when I started this crazy mission, and long before I ever thought that we'd be in a position where we've got like multiple volumes of curriculum for kinder through 12, and we've got like... Uh, partnerships with schools in 35 states, ranging from gifted and talented programs to kids aging out of foster care to kids in juvenile detention. I went on this listening tour because I just could not figure out like this gap. Like, Why is it that we say critical thinking is so important, but we're not teaching it to folks unless they're the most elite student at the most elite school? Like, What are we doing? And I started thinking about like, why is this happening? And I recognized a few things are going on. One, it's a huge problem with the belief gap. And when I say the belief gap, what I'm referring to is this issue where not all teachers 
Even today in 2020, we still have too many teachers who truly do not believe that all kids can handle rigorous academic material. Not all kids can dive in deep in the critical thinking content. So that's one thing, the belief gap, right? And that might not sound evil when you hear it. When you hear it, it might be like, oh, uh, these kids are really, really low. So like this material, they won't be able to handle it. So like when a teacher is making a decision around what kids are able to do or not do, it guarantees they won't be able to do it because you're not even giving them the opportunity to do it. And if you look at TNTP, they put out a report a couple of years ago called the Opportunity Myth, where they made it super clear. If you are a low-income kid of color in this country, it's a good chance, more likely than not, that you're not even getting material at grade level, much less material that involves critical thinking. So that's a belief gap. But then there's another component beyond belief. We have a set of teachers who actually believe all kids can achieve, but don't necessarily believe that they can make that happen. So you can call this a teacher efficacy problem. You could call this uh, an issue of just not feeling confident and being able to do this. But like education has changed a lot. The United States has one of the most diverse education systems in the country. So if I'm a teacher of a fourth grade classroom and I've got English learners, I've got kids that are a few grades behind, kids that are a few grades ahead, kids that are on IEPs and have special learning needs, I don't necessarily know how to do it, even if I believe deep down inside that I can. And then there's this other subset, teachers who believe, teachers who even have the skill set to do it, but there's no time. There's not enough training. There's not enough tools to actually make it happen. So when I start thinking about why we struggle to teach critical thinking so much in this country, I start to realize so much of the ed tech, so much of the solutions and innovations we've seen in education, particularly from the teacher-facing component, seem to be designed to like replace the teacher, right? Like get this app and do this and get this thing and do this and do this and do this with this app. But at some point, when do we start talking about embracing a teacher? Embracing a teacher with practical supports that save them time and allow them to do the hard thing. And for me, the hard thing is getting our kids equitable access to the learning they need, not just, not just to navigate the system as it exists, but to question, dismantle, and rebuild a new, more just, more fair system so that other people could have more opportunity than generations before us. I feel like that's always been part of the story in this country for a long time up until recently. This is one of the first generations that aren't doing better than the generation before. That means we gotta break some stuff up. But that's not gonna come from rote memorization and spoon-fed learning. It's gonna come from a very different approach that we lay out in very systemic, very practical terms in a Thinking Like a Lawyer book and in a lot of the Think Law resources that we use with teachers across the country. Well, and you know, what you're saying about breaking things up, we. I keep seeing on social media and hearing people talk about, you know, uh, education has just been broken apart. What better way to rebuild it? And then I start hearing the same conversations. It's like when, they, when they're talking about this new version of education, 
it sounds a lot like the old version, which is scary because I think that sometimes within the education realm, we just get into these patterns of doing the things that we've done, doing the things that we did as children. You know, it's just like, oh, okay, we're going to do this differently. So now what, what curriculum are we going to do? And then it's putting it in the same, same blocks that it was before. And this whole, you just mentioned the rote memorization piece. Uh, One of the things that your company addresses is the incompatibility of rote memorization and spoon-fed learning in a 21st century learning environment. And I have to say, I love that you say 21st century learning environment. I keep hearing folks in the education realm say, you know, we've been talking about 21st century learning for a long time. Why Why are we still talking about it? But a century is a long time. Our students are going to be living um, in this century, and uh, that's uh, that's just part of the, the world we live in, and it continues to expand. But how can career and technical education leaders and educators in general, um, what, what can they do to spur this critical thinking revolution? What are some ways that they can break these patterns that have been there and really truly create something new that's going to serve our students? So when I look at CTE administrators at district levels across the country and at system levels across the country, um, there's a couple of patterns I notice. Um, One is a lot of our CTE programming is really concentrated at the high school level, which makes sense for a lot of reasons. And I'm seeing increasingly more like academies and focus areas and exploration sorts of activities that are happening in the middle school levels. What I want to do is I want to actually step back for a moment and like take out the career, take out the technical. What happens if we just call that education? Okay. You're doing education. And if you're thinking about what education means for the moment, We've got to recognize like what we're dealing with. I am not someone who says that spoon-fed learning and rote memorization is completely insignificant. That's not true. I am a math teacher. It's kind of hard to do algebra when you don't know your times tables. Like you still need, and there's still a place for a lot of traditional ways that we've learned. However, if we start thinking about like what is the profile of someone who is 18 years old and really and, and truly prepared to navigate what comes next. And I start thinking about what does that entail? One, are they really good at learning how to learn? Can they learn how to learn? And if we think about this idea saying, okay, well, CTE can do this, but Just like I argue that gifted and talented programs sometimes suffer because of their operation in silos, and they should have a broader impact because of the strategies that work in gifted and talented education work in any classroom for any child. Think about the focus of CTE. Think about the kinds of things that you're learning at different CTE conferences and the approach that your CTE professionals take. What can you do with that? What can a gen ed teacher do to better understand how kids can be equipped to be a rock star when they come to CTE? Because one thing that's very, very troubling that you all could probably relate to, when I started Think Law, it was a shocking revelation where kids who are academic rock stars in the traditional curriculum experience struggled. 
Meanwhile, a lot of your struggling learners, meaning the ones who, despite their best efforts, have a tough time academically, did surprisingly well in a lot of these critical thinking activities. And man, your behavior kids, the ones that were always getting in trouble, they became the rock stars. So I'm sure a lot of you have seen the same thing in your CTE programs. Kids who seemed like they're like you know, underachievers academically, all of a sudden seem to be acting with a different level of motivation. But what can we start to do so that that is a part of what we see in our English classes or in our third grade environment? Think about it this way. The woman who sat across from me when I was sitting for my bar exam, it was her 13th time sitting for the bar exam. I was like, listen, don't touch my paper. I don't want your bad juju. Like, But she passed. And now they call a counselor. Now Esquire's at the end of her name. So if we think about things like this and we say things out loud to our children as traditional gen, gen ed teachers, and we say, hey, you're getting dinged because that's how it works in the real world. Well, one, is our school the real world? And two, do we even know the real world if we've worked in traditional education setting for the last 15 years of our lives? Maybe we don't. Maybe we need to really think through what actually matters. And if we were really focusing on what it takes for our kids to survive and to thrive in this world, then we've got to think about what that means for our ability to adapt as educators, our ability to make sure that we're equipping kids with these tools well before they start in a formal program in CTE once they get to high school. Wow, that is so so point on, and especially when we're living in this world where the level of innovation and change is already so rapid. You know, that ability to learn and relearn and to understand how to be good at learning is going to be so critical because it's it, we're going to see so much more of this sense of training and retraining. And uh, it, it, the piece too about the behavior problems as a culinary arts teacher. I would see that very frequently where kids who were in trouble in other classes uh, would not get in trouble when they had the hands-on piece in my class. So sometimes even looking for the true uh, root of where these behavior problems are coming from and, and finding those clues and saying, okay, we need to really blur the lines between our content areas because it's, <laughs> you know, this is uh this isn't, isn't serving them if it's not really truly replicating what that real world is. Definitely. Yeah. And earlier earlier this week, you posted on Twitter that COVID-19 highlights the crucial role math education plays in helping students understand and use their power to shape their worlds. Uh, And you have a webinar coming up tomorrow that's entitled Why Math and Racial Justice Actually Add Up. Um, within the culinary arts realm, or not culinary arts, but CTE in general, culinary too, but in CTE in general, we're always looking for ways that we can highlight what's happening in their academic areas. And math is a big piece because there's so much math that it happens within CTE. Um, but can you share more about this and um, a little bit about this topic of why math and racial justice actually add up? So I think it's so interesting because Jose Luis Wilson, who is uh, an incredible, incredible voice in education, um, particularly around topics of anti-racism, equity, and math education. He's a real deal. He's 
um, uh, NBCT. He's the real deal. I know Jose because he and I both went to Syracuse. I know Jose because he and I were both computer science majors. I know Jose because he and I were two of, I, I might be missing one person, but I, I really do think that he and I were the only two uh, black and brown graduates of our computer science program at Syracuse University. And what's so interesting is both me and Jose were really involved in different issues around uh, justice and fairness and fighting around like the plight of minoritized students at Syracuse University. Um, I, I was student body president. He was head of La Lucha. And we did a lot of things on the art side. And Jose was a poet. And I played the piano when I was in this band. And I danced. And we had all these sorts of things in common. And at the end of the day, we graduated with our computer science degrees and became math teachers in middle schools. That wasn't our plan. But there was something about the power of math that we realized. And it wasn't just that we had to sit in linear algebra and take up the Calc 3 and do all these like advanced math courses as comp sci majors. It was the idea that math meant access. Math was the language, the backdrop in which we could use to truly change this world. And there was currency in math. And what really got me thinking was we spent a lot of time talking about multiliteracies, like all the different ways that kids express their literacies beyond the book. But I don't necessarily know that we talk about numeracy in the same way. When I start thinking about critical thinking around math, I look at the way that my mom would always optimize constraints. She can stretch $20 more than anybody could in history. And I always would think back and be like, why is it that we live in a society where so many people say, like, I don't do math? Why is it that when we made a switch between the less rigorous assessments that we used across the country to the more rigorous assessments we did after Common Core, math scores are dismal. They've taken a huge nosedive when it used to actually be stronger than the reading. And I started recognizing something. It's not just about academic success. If all we focus on is academic success, we're only getting to half of it. But if we can get our kids to the point where as a social justice issue, they're not just getting the tools on how to play the game, but how to slay the game, it changes everything. I think about this. In Think Law, we just released our first math labs edition, where it's middle school math. And a very big topic in middle school math is percent change. So I can sit here and give you 10 questions to calculate the percent change. Or I can ask you, hey, if you were going shopping at a grocery store for survival and you had five items that you had to buy for survival, what would those five things be? Apparently, Rachel, we now know that those five things are toilet paper, toilet paper, toilet paper, toilet paper, and more toilet paper. But in a different way, our kids are probably going to come up with different ideas, but they probably won't think about medication, pharmaceuticals. So we use it as an introduction to talk about the way the pharmaceutical industry works. We talk about the company Valiant, who bought out a lot of very small pharmaceutical companies that sold one drug that was life-saving for a small amount of people and hiked up the price to crazy amounts. Now kids have to come up and calculate the percent change on this. Well, this hits a little bit different because it's about fairness and justice. So I'm a little bit more eager to do this. And now I actually end up being Senator McCaskill's aide. 
I need to give her the questions she needs to ask these people. So now I'm like crafting questions around math to make sure that they're able to actually do this. And then because a picture is worth a thousand words, I'm going to make visual aids using graphs, using my own discretion, my own judgment to tell the story that I want to tell. And now I'm recognizing something that was always true. Math was never neutral. In and of itself, times tables are times tables. But what am I using them for? What am I using the fraction for? What is the story I'm trying to tell? And if the story you're trying to tell is racial justice, then math needs to be a part of that story. So that's a really big part about what me and Jose are going to be talking about uh, tomorrow evening at uh, uh, Thursday evening at 5 p.m. Pacific and 8 p.m. Eastern time. So it should be a great conversation that's very practical in terms of what this means for classroom educators. Hmm. Wow. That is, that is so powerful. And it's, you know, I think that uh, within, with everything that is happening in light of current events, people are having conversations that should have happened a long time ago, or maybe the conversations were happening, but not, uh, it was more surface level. We weren't seeing any, anything changing because of it. But what are some things that CTE directors and education leaders in general do to ensure that they're not just having these professional developments that are either through webinars or, you know, that are um, asynchronous, but that they're actually creating real change in addressing the equity and racial justice and transforming a climate and creating a culture that is, that is going to be something that will truly impact and change the fabric of our society. So, I think when we start looking at issues of racial justice and equity, um, there's a lot of people that look at this and say, huh, I'm not ready for that. I'm not qualified for that. I don't know enough about race. I'm still reading all these books and I want to get an expertise there and whatever have you. But I think... That's why the reframing of this whole work is so important. I had to think back at a moment when all this stuff had really hit a peak. And I'm going to tell you something, Rachel, like just in full disclosure, as an African-American male that's leading a lot of this work, um, when I started it five years ago, there was something that really mattered to me. And that was, I am an instructional beast. I know how to get things going in the classroom. I know how to help teachers really understand critical thinking in a practical way that can transform the student learning experience. But as an African-American male that's approaching this work, it's so easy to get pigeonholed as like the diversity and equity guy. And for a lot of reasons, I like resisted that label. I didn't really want to be kind of tokenized and marginalized and pigeonholed into that category when I know that there was so much else to offer. But the reality is, it's one and the same. And when I had this revelation, I'm like, you know, what, what am I really doing? I could only explain it the way a math teacher would. It's the educational equity equation. That's what we're doing. That's when we say like educational equity equals academic success plus racial justice. That's when we say educational equity means that we're getting our kids to navigate the system plus dismantle the system. It means that they're able to 
play the game, but also slay the game. If we don't give them the critical thinking they need to create better than what we have right now, what's the point of all of this? And I say this as someone who understands that, like, my mom grew up with a message as an immigrant that you got to work twice as hard to get half as far. I grew up with a message that as a person that's growing up in Brooklyn, that's living in poverty and the color of my skin and opportunities that will be limited to me because of these issues, I'm going to have to work twice as hard to get half as far. So cool. I could keep on working twice as hard all day, every day. But do I want to tell that to my kids too? My son Oliver is four. My daughter Rose is seven. When is it going to stop? It stops when we say it stops. It stops when we start. And when we start, it means that one thing that every single educator needs to understand on this podcast who's listening in, erase this following phrase from your vocabulary. Just a teacher. If you ever catch yourself saying just a teacher, I give you permission to smack yourself in the face. (laughs) Just the teacher is an asinine thing to say. You are an adult with an incredible amount of power to impact the future of our kids. One teacher can crush a student's soul. One teacher can make a student shoot beyond the stars. So don't give me you don't have the power. You've got the power right now to start to question, to start to plan, to start to address all of the ways that you can fulfill the educational equity equation. What can you do that's not just about giving our kids the success? Like, yes, that critical thinking gap, academic success is important, but how are we making sure, whether it's kindergarten, fifth grade, CTE programs in high school, earth science, how are we giving our kids the, change, the, the, the tools they need to not just question the way the world is, but create a world the way it ought to be? And some might say, Colin, you're social justicing my kids. Ought to be, that sounds like you're indoctrinating my kids. I'm like, no, I am acknowledging that kids have power. And even if I don't necessarily agree with their viewpoint of what the world ought to be, I want them to know that they have the power to change the world now. And we need them to. Because Lord knows we done messed it up real bad. I don't know what we I've lost faith in the adults. It's all about the kids. They're all we got. Oh, and you are so point on about that, being about this generation. And I honestly believe that this generation is going to make it better because they're already collaborating globally. They're getting to know people, even though virtually, you know, they're playing games with, communicating with, whether it's through social media or other platforms people who don't look like them, people who, uh, that they're able to learn about their cultures, that they're able to see, hey, wow, this person, we have a lot in common, even though we have a lot of differences, but learn from each other. And I think that that's so important to be able to have a generation that is experienced other other cultures and gotten, gotten to know people to where it's going to make a more peaceful world. You're not going to want to go to war against someone when you've got friends over there, you know, or even within our own culture and our own uh, society, you know, just seeing that change. And I, I love that you said that because it truly is the kids of today that are going to make that impact. And you're, you're making such a huge impact right now in your circles and beyond because of the influence that you have. And I'm curious, 
who had the biggest impact on you and your work today? So that is a really easy thing to answer. Um, That's my mom, without a doubt, without a doubt, because um, in many ways, my mom was kind of a mad genius. When it came to the way that she viewed the world, it was a little bit interesting (laughs) because... She she didn't she wasn't a big fan of idle time. You know, I, I think she had this belief that like if 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 every single waking moment of every day wasn't filled with some class or extracurricular or workshop or thing at the community college, that if I had some time available, I was gonna do all the drugs, join all the gangs, preg- impregnate all the women. Like I think she just had just such a, a hyper focus on making sure that every second was filled up that although I grew up in tough conditions economically, I lived a very privileged life. I mean, I don't know any kids out of my neighborhood who play piano, tap dance, have gone on tour, have taught as a, in a hip hop dance company, has uh, seen maybe 12 Broadway shows before I graduated from high school. I mean, I had the kind of opportunities that you would see in the most privileged circles in New York City. It just so happened that my father was incarcerated for selling drugs, and I'm just the first generation in this country. And part of it was this idea that my mom, she knew how to make things happen. And there's one story that I think kind of demonstrates this. Like senior year, I remember every year, these kids would go on these European vacations that the school would pay for. And I would always like kind of thumb my nose at them. Like, man, they're so uppity, these rich kids, whatever have you. And I remember my senior year, somehow I had the paper in my bag and I was like, hey, mom, check this out. They're going to Italy. You should let me go. It's two weeks and it's $1,500. And mind you, like when I was 17 years old, $1,500 $1,500 was $15 million. I, I didn't even know what $1,500 million, $1, even looked like. And my mom looked at it and said, hmm. And I don't know if she's thinking at that point, two weeks, getting a vacation from Colin. That sounds pretty amazing. But next thing you know, fast forward a couple of months, I'm in an airport. And I'm there with my mom and all the kids from my school that are about to go on this trip. But you know who else is there? Yeah. A whole bunch of my uncles my aunts, some of my cousins, everyone is there. And my uncle looks at me and he starts crying. And he's telling me how proud he is of me. And it takes me all the way back to knowing like when my parents had first split And I lived in a one-bedroom apartment with all these people, up to nine people at any given time I live in this one-bedroom apartment. And I could think about this family who came here with nothing, with such a desire to fulfill this dream. And he did whatever it took. Everyone contributed so I can go. Everyone was a part of the solution. Everyone was part of like bringing this thing together. So when you hear my story, it's not an issue of despite the odds. No, it's because of the odds. 
It's because of these people like my mom and my uncles and my, my grandmother who would freeze milk in her freezer when she knew we couldn't have it. And even though it meant my cereal had these weird shavings in it, we always had milk or uncles that would bring groceries by when they knew my mom didn't have it and we needed it and they were in the neighborhood. So they would come drop it off so me and my sister wouldn't be hungry. And all that was just normal to me. None of it felt like poverty. None of it felt weird. And I was ashamed of none of it. So when I think about my mom, the power of possibility, the power of people, the idea that within five years, I can come up with an idea from nothing and have this program that is working all across the country and have this book that is, you know, being purchased all across the country to help people and keynote conferences like all across the country. I mean, this isn't my dream. This is the dream that my ancestors, I just know they're smiling and it makes me very, very happy to know wow. that I am making them proud. That is such a powerful story. And I, the line that um, it wasn't in spite of, but that it was because of. That's just such a message of hope for any anyone who's listening, and you know, it's just a, a story that needs to needs to be shared because uh, it's a, it really does show that piece, like, like you said earlier, the possibility. Um, you know, and, and you said before about people who say, "I'm just a teacher." I've also heard people say, "I'm just a mom." And moms have a powerful role, and uh, you know it's it's just uh, to see that impact. And I, I know that your um, mom and your family are very very proud. But um, wow! All right. Um, so if you could have a thirty minute Zoom meeting, we're going to go with Zoom since uh, that's what that's how we're <laughs> functioning these days. Um, with anyone who has walked the earth or is currently walking the earth, who would it be, and what would you want to ask them? So when I look like throughout history and, and, and kind of current events and, and I think about like people I would want to talk to um, who, who have ever walked the earth, uh, this is going to sound like, huh, you probably could have come up with a, a more creative choice, but it, it's got to be, it's got to be my grandmother, like my mom's mom. And the reason her story is so fascinating is that she had seven children and she was married to a pastor who died when the youngest was still like hugging her kneecaps. And I think about this woman that was, who had seven children and I just want to talk to her about what she did because what she did was craziness. What she did was she, she got a visa to come to the United States with no intention of ever returning because it was like, we're coming here and I'm going to create opportunities for my family. And that's it. I can't even imagine the cost that it took to get everyone flown to Brooklyn. But she like begged, borrowed from everyone she possibly could and worked really hard in someone's house. And I, I just, I just want to know, like, was she afraid? Was she confident? Did she feel like she had no choice? 
Because when I hear these stories of people who do the impossible, I know deep down inside, I just know that like parents across the country, they just want their kids to have a better opportunity, a better shot, a better life than they had. And to see that rugged determination to make this happen in the face of insurmountable obstacles. I just want to take notes. Like, Granny, how'd you do it? What's the deal? How does a woman do this at this time? It's incredible. The path that she laid, the groundwork that she laid. Um, so that, that, that would be my one person. She's not a very famous woman. People in my family know her and love her and treasure her memory, but her name is Gwyneth Morris, and she is a woman that I would definitely want to sit down for 30 minutes in a Zoom meeting with. Mm, you know, I, I read a quote recently, and I'm not sure who said it, but it said that we, that we have three deaths. The first is the day that, we're di- that we die. The second is the day that we're buried. And the third is the day that our name is uttered for the last time. And I, it, what you're, what you're saying right now about your grandmother is just beautiful because that legacy is living on. It's being passed on from generation to where I'm sure your children will know, will know her name and talk about her. So that's, uh, that's, that's really special. You know, that's, um, I, I'm sure that she's, uh, she's, uh, smiling right now, <laughs> um, well, Colin, thank you so much for joining us today. This has just been such great information and also emotional. You know, it was just a very, um, very important podcast and for everyone to listen to. So I, I know you're extremely busy with everything that's going on in your world right now. So thank you for your time today. And um, for those who are listening in, thank you for your support. Be sure to connect with us on uh, social media at NCLA underscore CTE for the latest news and best practices and CTE. And be sure to click on this podcast so that you can um, connect. You'll see links to Colin's book, um, to Colin's website and blog and his social media information so that you can continue to learn and grow from Colin and his work. Thanks again, Colin. Thank you.